A librarian. Um, blah. That was yeah. That was. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give that a fresh start. Yeah, Little... Give that another shot. <laughs> yeah. Me 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 me. <clears throat> Prepare the instrument. everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Joseph Dorowski, here with Todd Mack. Each week we look at a great character in a great story. Today we're talking about Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters. Uh, Venkman is played by Bill Murray. He co-stars in the film with Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Sigourney Weaver, Rick Moranis, Ernie Hudson, and Annie Potts. The film was directed by Ivan Reitman and released in 1984. So a little trivia on this film. Uh, Dan Aykroyd planned for John Belushi to have the Bill Murray role and for John Candy to have the Rick Moranis role, which really kind of cracks me up because... It's hard to imagine anybody but, but Rick Moranis in that Rick Moranis role. Well, apparently, so, so Dan Aykroyd, this was his idea, and he co-wrote the script uh, with um, Harold Ramis. And when they were working on that role and they had John Candy in mind, it was not a nerdy character. It was like a super slick businessman that was kind of swarmy. And, <laughs> and, and once you hear that and John Candy, you, maybe you can picture that one a little more. Like you can picture the same lines being said and delivered. It's, I'm thinking specifically of the party scene. Yeah. <laughs> which could certainly go either way, but it just is pretty magical. <laughs> yes, I agree. I, lo- I love what we have. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, this film has a 97% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, as well it should, I think. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, it, I understand it not being quite 100%. I understand some of the, you know, maybe someone not <laughs> being as entranced by Bill Murray's brilliant performance as others <laughs> are. Uh, but I think it's pretty darn good. So I'm happy to see it in the upper 90s. Yeah, I felt like it held up really well over time. When I watched it last night, I thought, man, like, this is really... It just holds up well. Yeah. I mean, some of the effects, obviously, not unexpectedly, feel <laughs> feel dated. But other of the effects, I was I was still really impressed with. I thought the ghosts were, overall, really good. Yes, the ghosts, definitely. Some of the uh, the proton packs, like the animation on those, <laughs> that, that maybe could have been updated. But, like, Slimer and the ghost librarian, which we'll get to, what? They, yeah. they were pretty good. Good work by the special effects what, team. What happens when she opens the fridge? That feels a little dated. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> but not the eggs cooking on the counter. That still no. is a lot. Yes. <laughs> a t- okay. Touch unsettling. Whew. Yeah, we're already getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, so how did you come to the work, to this work? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> we, we had a VHS copy. Uh, well, not a copy just of Ghostbusters. Let's say we had a VHS that had several other films um, <laughs> that had been put onto that VHS for my family in uh, some means. I don't want to get into the details. Wow. <laughs> it wasn't recorded off the TV. Let's just say that. Oh, okay. <laughs> interesting. Do you recall any of the other films that were tagged on with it? Because there were some interesting collections we had. Yeah. So I was just say, I have an uncle that <laughs> worked for Delta airlines. <laughs> no, just periodically we would get a box that had, VHSs that were recorded on the EP setting, so like long, you know, the longest we, he could get three films on there for us, and he was sending us copies of films that he had in his own collection, I believe. Wow. Uh, but, so yeah, sometimes you would have like Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and the Karate Kid, <laughs> and you know some other random film all on the same one, and you had to fast forward through Butch Cassidy to get to the Karate Kid. Wow. I, I do not remember what was on the Ghostbusters one. I wish I had your uncle. I mean, I love my uncles. If any of you are listening, I love you all. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we are all, all of our shows were taped off of TV. So we got all the great commercials. Do you ever get nostalgic just for the commercials? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, when I watch uh, original series Star Trek, I can't help but imagine the, the old commercials that we had. Because we recorded a, a marathon of the original series Star Trek onto, like, four different VHS tapes. And watching those episodes, I like want the peppermint patty commercials from the 1980s <laughs> to appear, or the uh, double mint gum with all, the twins. Oh, the double mint! Yes, yes. <laughs> like eight different groups of twins appear in the commercial. There are films like uh, Rocky Three or uh, Chariots of Fire that, if I see like just a DVD version of that, 
I I miss the commercials. Like I think, no, there's supposed to be a commercial break right there, uh, but there's not. They just go all the way through. There's there's no respect for uh, for the nostalgia of my childhood. One thing, you know, the internet has wrought a lot of problems in the world, but one thing that it's done that's really really awesome is it's become a repository for 1980s commercials. If you just <laughs> jump down the YouTube rabbit hole, <laughs> oh, bless their hearts. I'm going to have to slide some uh, a video into our uh, show notes. <laughs> for anybody feeling nostalgic for the 80s after watching or listening to us talk about Ghostbusters. All right, Todd. So how did you come to Ghostbusters? Well, uh, um, we never owned Ghostbusters. It was uh, Ghostbusters was right on the edge for what I was allowed to watch as a child. Um, I remember distinctly my mom. I can't remember having me leave the room or fast forwarding. There during, are a few lines of dialogue that I can during, understand a parent. Uh, a couple of parts. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember being terrified uh, because <laughs> I have a very low threshold for fear. <laughs> and uh, I remember ter- being terrified, especially at the library scene. And still today, uh, being alone in library kind of freaks me out. Um, Empty libraries are creepy places. Yeah. Yeah, the um, and that opening scene has it, it was pretty terrifying. For I guess me as a child. I mean, I don't know. I've consumed this for so long. Are empty libraries inherently creepy, or did Ghostbusters make them creepy? I don't know, but uh, for me, they're way creepy. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of being alone in the library, and I love libraries, but they just need to be other people, and preferably not in a basement. Uh, if there's exposed pipe. Or brick that always makes me a little uh, uneasy. If there are, if there's really loud air conditioning or um, uh, you know, like a temperature regulation, um, then it makes me nervous. So I, I loved my time at Michigan State University, but a lot of the books I needed were <laughs> on the bottom floor, and it was like <laughs> the cement floor that they, they didn't put any carpet or tiling on. It was just you know the bare yeah. cement down there, and uh, yeah, exposed pipes, and yeah, it, it felt kind of like that opening scene. Yeah, at Stanford there are multiple libraries, and two of the main libraries. Uh, one of them has since been torn down, but when I was there, the two main libraries were connected by. Uh, a big tunnel underneath that was also full of books. So it was underneath the ground, a tunnel that would connect one library to the other. Um, and that was pretty terrifying. And I had a friend in grad school who was, um, she was doing research in the library and she pulled just a random book off the shelf and opened it up. And there was a note inside of the book and it said, you are not safe here. (laughs) 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 And she, she about lost. Like she came to class and she was like visibly disturbed. She was so upset. Who puts that note there? I don't know, but um, if any of you, are, whoever is listening, do not ever do that. Yeah, that is not a fun prank. That is not an okay joke. <laughs> there are okay jokes and there are not okay jokes. That's in the not okay. And we've been derailed quickly. I should maybe just go ahead and note also my my wife works in the basement of a university library. <laughs> Bless her heart. Yep. (laughs) So uh, I'll give a quick spoiler-free synopsis before we dive in uh, for people not familiar with Ghostbusters. Here we go. This is the story of Peter Venkman, Raymond Stance, and Egon Egon Spengler, three parapsychologists who open a ghost-catching business after they are dismissed from Columbia University for their questionable research and methods. Mostly improvised lunacy ensues. If that sounds interesting to you, check out our show notes. We'll have uh, links to where you can find uh, Ghostbusters to check it out. Uh, And it is the season. It's the holiday season. It's a perfect time to snuggle up and watch Ghostbusters. You can probably find it on TV within the next few weeks. Yes, our producer Andrew there with some advice. It is not on Netflix, but it is readily available in many people's DVD collections, I'm sure. (laughs) I actually, I will tell you. Uh, the SUU library does not have it, and the Cedar City library had it checked out, and I don't own it, uh, so I ended up renting it off of Amazon Prime, which is fine. It's a few <laughs> bucks. Well, thank well you. Well worth it. Yes. All right. 
Um, here is the full synopsis if you've never seen this film. Here we go. A librarian encounters a ghost, which is really creepy. In a dark corner of a university, Peter Venkman, Ray Stance, and Egon Spangler share an office where they perform paranormal research. It is clear that Ray and Egon take the work seriously while Peter does whatever amuses himself uh, or makes it more likely for him to be able to woo a pretty woman. They investigate the occurrence at the library where they see a ghost, but they run like frightened children. <laughs> this is the moment they've been building their professional lives towards. <laughs> the second they see the ghost, well, first they say we don't know what to do and then one of them tries to talk to it and the ghost turns and screams and then the next shot is them running out of the Didn't library one of them tried to catch it yeah well they uh <laughs> he says you Ray go talk yells, to it get it <laughs> they just run away <laughs> Uh, shortly after they are fired from their university jobs and they set up shop in an abandoned firehouse as paranormal investigators or ghostbusters. A woman named Dana Barrett has a vision of demons in her apartment and specifically in her refrigerator. She comes to the ghostbusters for help. Vinkman flirts shamelessly with her, but they don't encounter any more paranormal activity. The ghostbusters invent technology to trap and contain ghosts and they capture their first ghost at a hotel. After this first success, they run ragged capturing ghosts all over New York. They hire Winston Zedmore as a fourth ghost. Buster. A government bureaucrat shuts down the Ghostbusters containment unit, which causes utter chaos as all the trapped ghosts are released. The Ghostbusters are arrested. Dana is possessed by a demon named Zool, the gatekeeper, who is looking for another man that is possessed by a demon called Vince Clortho, the Keymaster. Together, the gatekeeper and the Keymaster summon Gozer the Gozerian, a god that will bring on the apocalypse. The Ghostbusters are released to deal with the problem. Gozer allows the Ghostbusters to choose the means of their destruction. Whatever they think of will be their destruction. Though all attempt to keep their minds blank, Ray thinks of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, the cartoon <laughs> spokesperson for Brand of Marshmallows. A gigantic marshmallow man with a sailor's hat attacks the city. <laughs> Egon, who had warned the Ghostbusters to never cross the streams of their proton packs, say they must now cross the streams to defeat this monster. After they do cross the streams, an explosion occurs which defeats Gozer and rains marshmallow fluff all over New York City, and the Ghostbusters are treated as conquering heroes. The end. <laughs> pretty straight it's pretty straightforward i have to say after writing the summary for blink uh you know the 40 minute episode of doctor who writing the summary <laughs> of this almost two hour film was remarkably easy it's got a pretty straight through line uh i guess one reason for that is so much of what makes this film a classic and work so well is just the performances which as you noted have a heavy amount of improv which means in you know, in the script, they kind of set the scene, but they let the actors do a lot of goofing off during the scene, and then they go set up the next scene, and they just kind of move forward in a progression. I saw a YouTube video today of the best, um, best what was it? Best improvised scenes of all time in film, uh, top ten, and they 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 t- said like pretty much anything Bill Murray's ever done. Yes, he's, uh, he is not known for strictly staying on book. <laughs> but apparently this film especially was just heavily, heavily improvised throughout. Oh, and, and it great. feels like it. You see some of the, the lines that he gives, and he has a way of making a line funnier by understating it. Yeah. I think a lot of uh, performances, I, I think a lot of people would struggle to do it the, the way he does it, but it's also so opposite of... A lot of actors that come out of Saturday Night Live where, uh, in, well, I mean, just in improv in general and also in the comedy Saturday Night Live, a lot of it is about being bigger and louder and, you know, busier than the guy next to you. And Bill Murray's comedy is so much about just kind of quietly saying something (laughs) that is utterly hilarious, but he delivers it as though it's not. And it makes it funnier. I was just checking the recesses of my mind and I found uh, MTV.com. The 103 greatest quotes from Ghostbusters, which is like <laughs> pretty astounding that there are 103 great quotes from any film. Uh, it says, um, we ain't afraid of no quotes. Just pretty great. Um, How many? I, I would guess 75% of those are coming from, from Peter Venkman. Peter Venkman. Yeah. Uh, well, number one actually comes from Ray. Drop everything, Venkman. We got one. Number two, from Peter Venkman. Egon, somehow this reminds me of the time you tried to drill a hole in your head. Do you remember that? Number three, have you or any member of your family ever been diagnosed with schizophrenic or mentally incompetent? Uh, I'll call that a big yes. i call that a big yes. I've, I, that's one line that what? I kind of forget I'm quoting. Well, my, <laughs> but I quote the, it. 
Oh, it's 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 the whole it's the whole scene here. Have you or any member of your family ever been diagnosed with schizophrenic or mentally incompetent? Well, my uncle thought he was Saint Jerome, and then Venkman says, "I'll call that a big yes." <laughs> I think that's uh, kind of like some Star Wars lines. I forget I'm quoting a movie when I say some yes. things, and I think that well, that's a big yes. <laughs> it's one of the, <laughs> the kinds of things that I'll say sometimes. Uh, I collect spores, molds, and fungus. <laughs> You don't act like a scientist. You're more like a game show host. I think, I think we're going to derail ourselves into just reading lines of dialogue, which... We uh, both have the same problem, you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> there are only about 95 more, so... Before you truly get back on track, I, I want to ask you guys about the name Egon Spengler. <laughs> like, well, I think what all, happened there? All of these names, I think... Like, like, Venkman sounds, like, odd, but Egon and Spengler, together, I always think that's two separate characters, and it's their last names. <laughs> Egon Spengler. I don't yeah. know. They, they've got, they all have great names. Janine Minitz. 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 Yeah. Mine, Raymond yeah. Stans. <laughs> and what's Ernie Hudson, Hudson's character? It's, uh... Oh, it's, Zedmore. uh... Yeah. Zed, yeah these- Zedmore? Winston Zedmore. <laughs> Yeah, these are all fantastic names. And a lot of them feel like they wouldn't be out of place in a high fantasy. (laughs) Zedmore, Venkman. (laughs) Do you believe in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the theory of Atlantis? Uh, If there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. (laughs) That's Zedmore's great line. And Todd, oh, I feel like we're fantastic. going to be having a discussion, and then suddenly you're just going to start quoting a line for the film throughout this well, entire podcast. this may or may not happen. I have 103 in front of me. <laughs> uh, I have a question for you, a serious question. Well, I don't know that there will be that very many serious questions tonight. Um, this, <laughs> this is a good way to kick off uh, Halloween for me, because um, as scary, as, as afraid as I was of this film when I was a kid, I can handle it now, so... <laughs> So I'm really okay, but um, uh, so, listeners, to hear what maybe we can't handle, just hold out for our Mount Rushmore fear episode that's yeah. coming up. <laughs> There's plenty. There are plenty of things that I cannot handle, but uh, Ghostbusters I found um, has has uh, has moved into the realm of films that I can successfully handle um, with the lights off. Uh, we have this possible discussion topics here, and you just wrote Bill Murray, Bill Murray, Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> So I have a question for you, um, and it is, how much of Peter Venkman is Peter Venkman, and how much of Peter Venkman is just Bill Murray? Right, so Bill Murray today has become, like, this grand trickster figure in our culture. <laughs> he is Puck. Yes, he is Puck. He'll just appear at a party for no reason that he wasn't invited to. The photos will arrive on the internet. Everyone will talk about it. And then he's gone for three weeks. And then he's bowling with a youth league in Pennsylvania. <laughs> he, or he's randomly helping people move on the streets of New York. Yeah. Wow. And he, well, and he's famous, too, for um, it, it is impossible for Hollywood to get him to be in a film because he has no agent. You just have to run into him and ask him if he'll do it. <laughs> like, give him the script and say, will you do this? And he'll say yes or no. Uh, I, like, there's numerous articles I've, I've read about how difficult it is to get a hold of him. And sometimes he's in something where you're like, what is Bill Murray doing in this? Like, famously, he gave an interview where he talked about doing the voice of Garfield in the Garfield animated movies. Uh-huh. Where someone was like, this doesn't seem like your usual kind of role. He's like, yeah, they told me the Coen brothers were doing the script, and I thought, I've always wanted to work with the Coen brothers. Turns out it wasn't Ethan and Joel. <laughs> but oh, I'd already agreed to do it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, there's some legendary stories of him on Groundhog's Day where, like, he was ordered to get an assistant, and so he hired a woman who was deaf and blind. <laughs> <laughs> as his personal assistant and had her with him at all times and told everyone to go through her to get to him. Oh gosh. I just, uh, anyway, but getting back to oh, my question. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like you said, so much of the script is improvised. So it's hard to say like how much was written down for these characters. Again, Dan Aykroyd was planning on John Belushi to have that role. And, uh, John Belushi died before, uh, the movie was even in pre-production. So they were, 
obviously, I mean, they were going in a different direction when they had Bill Murray um, take the role. But I guess there is something to his character that has an actual arc throughout the story that uh-huh. none of the other characters really have. So I, I want to say there's something more than just Bill Murray being Bill Murray going on there. Because that opening scene when we first meet him, he is doing, like, the most unethical, (laughs) slimy, uh, you know, worst nightmares of faculty and student relationships. (laughs) Like, anything bad that you can imagine uh, an authority figure doing to abuse their role. He's doing it, but we somehow find it charming and kind of chuckle. I had completely forgotten about this scene. Yeah. So well, what's I, happening is he's uh, he's apparently testing um, volunteer uh, students. Well, he's paying them five bucks. He's <laughs> paying students five dollars. A young man and a young woman well, to come I, in. I, I just gotta say there are layers of unethical behavior going on. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to separate everything. Uh, let's start with he's using electric shock. <laughs> As something that would be frowned upon. So he's testing, would we say, uh, testing telepathy? Uh, yes. So he's holding a card and thinking of what he sees on the card. They can't see it. And if they are able to tell him the shape that he's looking at, he does not shock them. If they, <laughs> if they fail, wrong, he does he shock them. them. <laughs> so every time the kid does it, he gets it wrong. And the kid gets a sh- the, the young man gets a shock. And then he looks at the young woman, woman and does this kind of like very kind kind of suave uh take on this and then he'll he'll say oh and what is what 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 do you think that here you know take a deep breath and and concentrate and then she'll say you know some shape it's a star or something and then he'll look at the back of the card and it's wrong but instead of turning the card over so that she can see it he just says five out of five you're (laughs) unbelievable you really have a kiss (laughs) Like he acts like he's looking around to see her point of view and saying, "Like, can you see this? Can you? Uh, can is you there a reflection guy? around here?" <laughs> and then the young man gets really mad. And there, there's one moment where the young man gets shocked. Uh, the young man gets shocked, and his gum falls out of his mouth as he's shaking, and then he <laughs> slowly picks it up and puts it back in his mouth. I don't know who that that cameo actor is, but he did a good job with oh, being really a frazzled good. young man. <laughs> And he's so mad, and then he storms out, and he says, you can keep your $5, and he says, I, I will. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because when he gets upset about being shocked, uh, <laughs> Bill Murray yells, like, we're paying you, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I guess the layers of what's going wrong, <laughs> as far as a professional researcher, we have uh, the use of electroshock, which would be frowned upon. We have him uh, fudging his results and creating false data sets. <laughs> and then we have him doing all of this for the purpose of flirting with the beautiful co-ed. Wait, yeah. you say false data sets as if you <laughs> expect he was actually recording these results. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> he might not have even been writing down anything down. Oh, man. Um, and so I was, he has the actual character arc where he starts as this fairly horrible human being, but... Uh, well, and one who is clearly just kind of flirting with any woman that he encounters. And it reminded me somewhat of the Asterios Polyp storyline where we said where the story opens with him kind of as a lost soul who can't form a relationship. And by the end of the story, through all the events that happened, he has, you know, found someone and has kind of become more of a whole human being through making a healthy relationship with someone else. And I think of all of the Ghostbusters, uh, Venkman is the only one who kind of changes from beginning to end. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't care about his work. He's skeptical of, of the paranormal aspects of it. And he certainly isn't a good scientist and he doesn't seem to be a good man, you know, that could have a real relationship with a woman. And by the end, you know, he's kind of sacrificing himself to try and take care of, uh, the woman who's been possessed by a demon. And is, you know, we're given the impression, though Ghostbusters 2 doesn't hold this up, we're given the impression that he's ready now to enter into this full relationship by the end of the story. I don't even know if I've seen Ghostbusters 2. I remember there was a lot of pink goo in New York sewers and a weird morphing painting. It's been... Oh, and the Statue of Liberty walks. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's all I remember. Those are some flashes. I think I've seen it once in my life and I was probably like 13 or 14. Wow. Um, yeah, I agree. I, it's interesting to trace his arc and to kind of 
think about when are the moments that in which he changes. So uh, he's a he's a, a total creep at the beginning, and then they all get fired, and he's still just kind of schmoozing his way through everything. But but by this time he has a, he has actually seen a ghost. Yes, but he, uh, much less than the others is he taking anything seriously. <laughs> Which you would, I mean, you would think if that were your line of work, and I'm, well, let's put line of work in uh, big uh, scare quotes. <laughs> I did love there's, after they get fired from the university, uh, I think it's Ray who's like, guys, you don't understand. I've worked in the private sector before. They expect results. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, and so he go. You know, he he convinces uh, Ray to. Is it Ray that takes out the huge loan? Yes, <laughs> with his parents' house as the collateral. Yes, people take. Everybody has a third mortgage on their house these days. <laughs> and Egon's like in the back, spouting off the math. He's like, within the first two years, it'd be ninety thousand dollars in interest. <laughs> in interest. <alone." laughs> so they go to the they go to the the abandoned firehouse. And Egon is, again, spouting off all, all of the problems with this place. The wiring and the just the whole infrastructure. The place is ready to come down. And uh, and then Ray is super excited because it has a, a fire pole. And well, he's, and you get he's wondering sense. if the fire pole works. Like, <laughs> Does this thing still work? Does this thing still work? As if there, <laughs> as if there was some mechanism or something by which you would uh, go down uh, but the fire pole. So they're there with a the real estate agent. And you kind of get the feeling that... Um, Venkman and Spangler are complaining about it to try and drive the the price down. And then Ray comes down the fire pole. He's like, we're buying it. <laughs> we're going to take the thing at the current we'll asking price. Right <laughs> and he does the same thing with the car. I love Ray. I just think he's hilarious in, especially in this, in this, uh, through this section where they're buying the, buying the firehouse and getting the car and they just blow through all of the money from the, <laughs> <laughs> right. So I guess it's, wor- it's worth noting those three when we're talking about the the three initial Ghostbusters. So you have Egon, who is just this—he's the stereotypical scientist. Everything is just data and you know inventions that he can make, and he he's not equipped well to handle other human beings. <laughs> and and Ray is just raw excitement and joy about everything in this line of research that he's found himself in. And then Bill Murray is the one who can actually you know function (laughs) socially i mean i think it's telling that when they first see the ghost in the library um they say well why don't you go try and talk to her (laughs) you're the the psychologist right well well, i think he's they're saying like you're the only one who can talk to people right (laughs) so you like we don't know how to talk to people and he goes and tries and like like where are you from like kind of bar opening lines (laughs) and he goes back and says none none of my stuff's working (laughs) it's interesting though as you say that because um, of the three of them, he is the most horrible person. Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting that they, that we would recognize him as like the the best functioning, but also the worst human being. I think it's an interesting thing that they do in the creation of the, the in in the dynamic of the team. Yeah, and he, well, he's the one that has to learn a lesson, and he does. The others don't really. I mean, Egon stays Egon. <laughs> <laughs> and Ray never really loses his lust for this life. <laughs> so they go, so they, uh, so we've got opening scene at the library. Then we've got the, the, they get the, the, they get the, themselves set up and then nothing happens. And then they finally get a, a call for a real ghost at a hotel and they go in and they find. <laughs> well, before <laughs> that, don't they, uh, they talk with Dana, right? Sigourney Weaver. Does she come in first? Now I'm not 100% sure. I've lost the order of this. <laughs> no, because doesn't she find out about them by seeing them on TV? Oh, they have that horrible commercial. <laughs> <laughs> it, and that is before. You're right. Yeah. So I think she comes in before. And uh, and the, he goes to her house and does this just horrible, shameless kind of flirting with her. Um, and then is that when he says, I'm going to go for broke? I love you. <laughs> She's like, you are the worst. <laughs> and sends him packing. Uh, then they actually oh, oh, do yes, find a real ghost. Because then they're eating Chinese food, and he's like, I'm going to need to borrow some of our, uh, what, what's the money? The, I've the lost money the from the mortgage. But yeah. I can't remember, the kitty or something like that. Yeah, and, and they're like, uh, this meal is the last <laughs> of, of our money. 
And that's when they get the call to run to the hotel, where they actually become a, a viable business for the first oh, time. Oh, doesn't, doesn't he want the money? He wants the money he to take He wants the money Dana. to take her out to dinner. He's like, <laughs> he, she's our only client. We need, I need a wine and diner. <laughs> and then they say there is none. They go to the hotel, and they absolutely destroy <laughs> And that was another thing that I had forgotten about this film, is how much just, like, how destructive their, uh, their guns are. <laughs> proton packs, Todd. Proton packs. They're proton packs. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, see the Star Wars episode for how well, how great I am at uh, getting the t- the tech terms right for uh, films. The proton packs are wildly destructive. <laughs> it's it's really really fun to watch the uh, them destroy that hotel, uh, chasing the the Slimer. The, Slimer is that what they call him? Yeah, that one is Slimer. I know him because he was kind of like a. A puppy dog that hung out at the firehouse in the cartoon version of Ghostbusters. <laughs> was that ghost, and he was named Slimer. So, uh, and then and then they become really famous. And I'm just I'm just like trying to march through this and see at what point is there any change in Vinkman. Well, we get the montage, and obviously the montage is mostly just establishing that they're running themselves ragged and to give comedic bits of them doing their thing throughout the city. And I guess. It's, uh, wh- I really gotta say, you need to watch this and just pay attention to Bill Murray's face. I mean, all of the, they all give good reactions, but so much of what makes this funny is, yes, there's the quotable lines of dialogue, but also there's just fabulous reaction shots for everyone. Like, I'm thinking when they first turn on uh, Venkman's, uh, or Spangler's power, uh, proton pack, and it makes this high-pitched whine, and Egon, <laughs> who invented it, and, and uh, Venkman both just kind of slide themselves to the far side of this very small <laughs> elevator. <laughs> And it's just, you know, a quiet but brilliant comedic moment in the film. Yeah. They they really have the um oh just the timing. Like their their timing is impeccable throughout, I think. It's really, really good. Um But so yeah, right. So we have a montage where they catch a bunch of ghosts, so they become super duper famous. They're on the news, they're on Larry King. A very young Larry King, by the way. <laughs> um uh, although it was kind of like uh, Betty White in um, in uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show, where <laughs> even a very young Larry King still looks like a very old Larry King. So, I, okay, brief aside, maybe this will get edited out. Today, in my class, we were talking about uh, rhetorical strategies and ethos, logos, and pathos, and I was showing some advertisements, and we were talking about like what the primary rhetorical strategies are, and I showed the Snickers Betty White commercial <laughs> to my students when she gets tackled <laughs> in the football game. Oh. <laughs> and one of my students was like, well, the, uh, once it was like, who is that? And then a bunch of the other students were like, that's Betty White. <laughs> what do you mean, who is that? And she's like, well, what's she famous for? And I was like, oh, well, Golden Girls, Mary Tyler Moore show. And then some of the people were starting to list some of her more current things, like her sitcom and, uh, that's on uh, the TV land. I think she has a sitcom right now. I was like, well, let me go see when she started her career. She started in radio in the 1930s. Wow. <laughs> she was first nominated for an Emmy in 1951. Oh, <laughs> and her most recent Emmy nomination was 2011. A 60-year span. That's amazing. Betty White's Emmy nominations. Anyway, sorry about that aside, but you mentioned Betty White. That's okay. She was on that- my mind from class today. <laughs> it was it has not been the first aside of this episode, and will probably not be the last, but... Uh... So my question is, at what point do we start to see any change in in uh, Vinkman? So I think it's it's probably his next interaction with Dana, right? right. He's, is this when she's coming out of the rehearsal? Rehearsal, and he's kind mm-hmm. of waiting for her. And my sense is this is probably the first woman he's actually waited for or wanted to see again. <laughs> Okay. I think most of his previous relationships, just from what we saw at the beginning, were not long-term relationships. <laughs> <laughs> so he's standing outside. She comes out. He's doing this this kind of. I mean, he's a he's a huge celebrity now, and he knows it. And he's kind of s- strutting, doing this <laughs> silly kind of dance, wearing a red jacket on top of his Ghostbusters. Uh, <laughs> what do we call it? Coveralls. Yes. Um, Jumpsuit jumpsuit and then she comes out and they have an interaction that's far more civil than the last one although he's still pretty uh flirtatious yeah but i'm wondering what hap- what is there between the first time they meet and the second time that he meet that would that would give us any any indication that he's changed as a human being besides the fact that now he's waiting for her, like what what causes that 
Or is there anything? Our producer Andrew's coming in. Is it weird to think that fame fixed him? Like celebrity was actually <laughs> well, the thing I mean, that made a difference? So that montage that shows them becoming famous, I think it's more showing work than... To work and, and, and service yeah, and like, interacting with real people and, and seeing real generosity and... and um, and, and gratitude for I, what I, I don't know that we see all of that in that montage, but I think this is probably the first stretch of time where he's actually worked. <laughs> I mean, he's obviously not treating his university job as serious work. Right. He's not treating the start of the Ghostbusters job really as serious work. Um, so I think there's a change there that comes through the montage. And I think there's just the implication that isn't explicit in anything that we see on, on screen, but that he can't you know he he's thinking about Dana in a way that he has not thought about any previous relationship but, or he wouldn't be out what there, is there I lo- I really like what you've said about work I don't see any indication from her or from him or for th- from anything else except for the fact that he's there which means there's something going on Right that's what I mean it's, it's just I think we're meant to assume that because he's there to meet her and it's not a random chance meeting and it's not her seeking him out Right and you compare that to the man we saw doing this research project, such as it was, in the first scene, and that's a very different role than you would expect him to have. Right. And so I think the way that I'm reading this is is not that he's changed because he finally met a woman that he's really interested in, but that there's something about that just exhausting day-in, day-out work, even though it brings a level of um, celebrity and fame that is obviously going to bring its own set of issues, but it brings about a change in his character that there's enough, there's enough going on in that montage with him as a character that we can say that's what produces the change more than him finally meeting a woman that he could really be interested in because I don't really buy, I don't buy the fact that like you meet the right person and then all of a sudden you're changed just because of that person. No, I don't think so. And I, I think we've kind of had this sort of story before. I mean, I already mentioned Asterius Polyp. Like, he's, he meets the person that is going to be in his happy relationship at the end of the graphic novel fairly early on, but he's right. not ready for that relationship. Like, he needs to change before it is the right relationship for him and for her. And I do think it's really interesting that we know just backbreaking, like, not sleeping and working your tail off work, even if it, even if it brings you loads and loads and loads of success that maybe there's one thing that, <laughs> I mean, it's not like this is the deepest movie yeah, ever made. I, I would say we're probably having more thought on this change than <laughs> most people who watch this movie do. <laughs> yeah. Well, most. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure some people have thought really deeply about this, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, but, uh, but I think that it's interesting. I, I think that's a really good point that, that it's, I think that it's the work. I think it's the work. Is is that a satisfying answer? Is like the montage showing hard work a satisfying reason for what is a reasonably significant change in his character? Like, do you feel like it's earned in the story? Not like yes. the character earned it, but it's earned in storytelling. Yeah, I think that it is. It's the only thing that I can point to that says this is a real thing that's happened to him that that could cause a change in character. It's certainly more believable than just to say, well, he finally met a woman that, that you know, stirred him or something. Because, I, I don't know, that just doesn't satisfy me as an answer. But to say he's worked really, really, really hard and that's made a change in his character in some way. It's not like he's, um, you know, turned into Mother Teresa. Right. After all of this work, he's still kind of a creepy guy. And... <laughs> Uh, but but he's certainly different than he is at the beginning of the film, and I'm happy to accept the fact that it's been loads and loads of really hard work that's made it like that. I, and I think we do just, again, need to give credit to Bill Murray's performance that we didn't hate the character where he was at the start of the film. <laughs> All right. Uh, but that also we can appreciate that something has changed. Because, again, there's not a whole lot within the plot line or the narrative that we're, we're given on screen. I mean, we laugh a lot, and there's a lot of really good lines. But as far as character development, there isn't as much work done in that particular area in this movie as in some others. When you say that we don't hate him, like, explain what you mean by that. Because he's pretty awful at the beginning. Right, but there are awful characters that you loathe watching. 
because right. they're so bad. And he's doing awful things, but do you loathe watching that scene, or do you find yourself kind of chuckling at some of the stuff that goes on? I, I feel like I, I'm able to recognize what a creep he is from the very beginning uh, whilst, while not like rejecting him sort of outright. Yeah, and I think this is, okay, a lot of the discussion we're having right now, we're going to need to have again when we talk about Groundhog Day, my favorite film of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Murray does the same thing, where that guy is a creep at the start of the film. He's, you know, self-centered and um, completely oblivious to the needs or uh, or desires of anyone else other than himself. And through you know, what could potentially be centuries of work <laughs> in Groundhog Day, uh, he, he <laughs> learns to be selfless. And I, I, we don't see Venkman learn to become selfless, but I think we see a different Venkman at the conclusion than the beginning. I agree. So they they meet, um, he says, oh, I can't even remember what, what's going to happen now. It's, I mean, it's not like, it's not the most complicated plot in the world. Well, they, they go to the party, right? Isn't the party the next time he sees her? Um, yes. Which is Rick Moranis' character. I think we need to just give a moment and a nod to Rick Moranis for a a solid performance as, shockingly, a nerdy, socially awkward character. (laughs) (laughs) He's really, really great. But you know what? I think he's really sweet. Yes. When he when when he says, "Oh, you, you what does it happen? Left the TV on or something?" And he says, "Don't worry, I turned my TV up really loud so that people would think that both of our TVs were broken, so they wouldn't be mad just at you." And I think, "Oh man, you're a really good guy." <laughs> and she just you know brushes him off because he's I don't know not her type. Let's say. All right, when you said that this is a movie you can handle now, but it was kind of borderline when you were a kid. Yeah. I have to say, for me, when I was a kid, I think the scariest moment wasn't any of the monsters. It was the indifference that New Yorkers had <laughs> towards his character screaming and falling down when there's a demon dog chasing him. Really? Yes. I remember, like, every time there was that scene, because he, he... So, at the party, a demon dog gets... <laughs> Gets out this claymation and sometimes awkwardly matted demon dog <laughs> runs through the party and chases the Rick Moranis character down. But he runs through the streets of New York City and there's a scene where he like runs up to a restaurant and he's pounding on the glass in the restaurant yelling for help and then he kind of slides down and everyone in the restaurant yeah. looks and he goes back to their meals. And to me as a child, I was like, why is no one helping this man? <laughs> like that. That level of disregard, I guess, which I probably wasn't processing it that way, was more troubling to me than the claymation demon dog. You were a deep kid. Uh, maybe it was just because the claymation was claymation. I was just scared of ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I th- but I think it's true and and really interesting. It's interesting. I'm very in- I'm, next week. I'm going to be in New York City, and I'm going to take notes on how New Yorkers really are, because it seems like we have kind of two visions of New York. Right? There's the New Yorkers that are really tough, and they're you know they're the people that wouldn't wouldn't turn the other way to help a guy being chased by a demon dog through the streets. Uh, but then you get the you know the the 9/11 version of New Yorkers who are totally band. selfless and band together. And they band together and do amazing things. Which is also, like, after 9-11, the Spider-Man movie is more of that version of New York. Like, they added scenes to make that version of New Yorkers what you saw in the Spider-Man movies. Like right. it's, the same, it's the same feeling that we get from Boston. People from Boston are tough and they're individualistic. But after the, after the bombings at the Boston Marathon, um, we get this different version of Boston where it's like, don't mess with Boston. It's the Boston Strong. Yeah, Boston Strong. And... Uh, well, I think it's with, really interesting. With New York, there is so there's both the 9/11 kind of hallmark that changed the identity of you know that city as much more so than all the changes that that marked for the rest of the world and our society sure. moving on. But there's also like the New York in 1970s and 80s films is very much a different New York City than you get the post Disney cleanup of Central Park and Times Square. Like there uh-huh. was a concerted business and political effort to change what New York was in the nineties. Is taxi driver, is that New York city? Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, this, it's just a dark. It's a it's a darker. It's like Gotham. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I mean, this is in the eighties, and I think that shift towards again. I mean, it was called the Disneyfication of Times Square and of of Central Park when they worked really hard to clean up both like the the little truth of what it was, but also the reputation mm-hmm. of New York City. And I, I'm pretty sure that was all in the nineties that that happened. Yeah, interesting. So but the, it's interesting that as a kid that you would pick up on that. I just wanted someone to help the nerdy guy, I guess. <laughs> Maybe there's some identification going on there. <laughs> At this point, it, it wasn't. It wasn't like just go out on a date with him. He really needs it. It's just don't let the demon dog <laughs> eat the nerdy eat guy. The nerdy guy. <laughs> Well, he doesn't get eaten, though, does he? Well, no, he just gets seen, uh, though, he, like, he, he, he drifts down, and we don't see what happens. So it's... I, I mean, the next time we see him, he's just possessed and is now the key master. Oh, I'll tell you the other creepy, creepy scene for me is when she's sitting in the chair and the arms come out of the chair. Oh, yeah, that one. I do... That's yeah. disturbing. You can't yeah. tell me that that's less disturbing than the guy running through the streets. Not don't tell out. me what's disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, even last night, that was the one point last night when I was watching it where I was like, huh, huh. <laughs> completely <laughs> forgot that that happened and it totally freaked me out. <laughs> well, well I'm okay we mentioned now. early on, like the, uh, the refrigerator opening, like what you see in the refrigerator, uh, isn't as creepy now because the effects <laughs> it looks like are a dated. weird music video or something. <laughs> yes. Uh, music video is a really good description, but the eggs boiling on the countertop remains creepy. And, uh, and so I wonder yes. if there's like the, the, over, to, you know, the the chair that she's sitting in, that's something that's in your house. The eggs in the countertop, that's something in your house. The weird dimension within the refrigerator, that's otherworldly enough that you separate it. So I wonder if there's something about the familiarity of, you know, an egg cracking on a countertop, but then something crazy happening, or just sitting in a chair that looks like a normal chair, and then something crazy happening makes it all Well, the little... thing that you're seeing in that case, I don't know. It's, I mean, the thing that you're seeing with the eggs is and it, it's the same with the books at the very beginning in the library there's nothing there um like there's how do i say this like there's no cg right yeah there's no cgi this is all and same it, with I mean, the arms just, coming uh, out of the sofa i'm sure and the arms coming out of the sofa are the same thing although there is something really kind of otherworldly about about that the books i mean the books it's just it's just books but they're floating across the across the the aisle <laughs> No behind. human can stack books like that. <laughs> and the cards as they go come flipping out. That's what's the most terrifying to me. Um, probably even more so than the ghost, although the ghost lady reading the book, that's pretty creepy. And then when she turns around and has a freaky skeleton face, uh, that's pretty scary. But, um, but opening the fridge, it's just a cartoon. It looks like came in from Dora the Explorer or something, but it's like scary music. What Dora the Explorer are you watching? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just is, it's like all these bright kind of Dora yeah. colors. And, well, and like the pyramids, like, yeah. Couldn't you all. see Dora like, now we have, we're, we have to cross this, <laughs> the creepy screw bridge. And then we have to go to the, to the creepy pyramid. Go into the refrigerator of wonder. <laughs> the refrigerator of wonder to the pyramid of doom. And like, yeah. I can see Dora. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it has to be the color scheme. It's all like pink <laughs> and yellow and it looks like a Pink Floyd cover or something. It's like, yes. it's very strange, but, uh, very jarring and certainly, uh, dated. It's one of the few parts in the film where I think that the effects just really fall down <laughs> over time. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, I don't know. I don't remember, I don't remember where we were headed with this conversation, but... <laughs> But uh, it's certainly not super scary to me. I've never had the the feeling like I wonder if I open my fridge if I'll see another dimension in there. But I have had the thought like, okay, all you books, you stay, you stay where you're supposed to be. Armrests, right? no demon arms coming out yes, of you tonight. No demons arm, no demon arms gonna come out of the. What, out of the couch. One thing that's odd to me is um, when we talked about in our weird children's story draft, we. T- I, <laughs> I dwelt some on the glowing red eyes in the wolf face in Never Ending Story, right? Yeah. But the demon it, dogs don't do that to me. They're not... I don't know. They, they don't scare me <laughs> in the way that Never Ending Story did. 
Do you think they looked as fake to us when we were kids as they do now? I don't know. Do you think that uh, has something to do with it? Because the wolf in uh, Neverending Story looks like a wolf with red eyes. See, I, I don't even remember. I've refused to watch that movie for so many decades. Well, he looks a little... I mean, I think if we were to watch it now, he would look a little bit robotic. But, like, the fur looks like fur. Mm-hmm. But these these demon dogs in Ghostbusters don't don't even look like anything that we that we would associate with dogs, except that they bark and they have four legs. But they don't look like they don't look like real dogs in the way that that one looks like a real wolf. I, I think. Yeah, and I wonder if one reason why maybe I had the separation is I do have a memory of when I was a kid watching some TV special that explained some of the special effects in Ghostbusters. And I'm sure it, I remember them talking about Slimer and I'm sure they also talked about those dogs. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if I had some kind of separation for that, which somehow (laughs) it leaves a little more craziness for eggs to be boiling on a countertop (laughs) because it wasn't explained when I had had some of the other effects explained. I loved those kinds of I mean, they're called DVD specials, to, or, you know, extras today. <laughs> but I loved those when I was a kid whenever I could find those things that explained how they did stuff. Stay and tuned for the Mount Rushmore of Fear episode to find out how soothing it is for me to know exactly how something is filmed. <laughs> <laughs> or, or is not. Um, all right. Oh, we, all right. We, we don't have a whole lot of them. Well, before Vang, well, okay. Let's, let's get to them on top of the building. So... We're building towards the final act where uh, the demons have taken possession of a couple of humans and have now <laughs> released Gozer of Gozeria, which is a great name. And uh, they've got to get totally to the top. I totally forgot about her, her uh, woman avatar. <laughs> yeah. I had completely forgotten about that as well. Uh, the, there's a scene that I love, which I always, like, this is a mental image for me of hard work. <laughs> Is when they have to walk up because the elevator's not working. They have to walk to the top of a New York skyscraper. And there's this shot where it's down below them and they enter this, the frame and they're, they're walking upstairs and they just stop and all stare up. <laughs> it's just this never ending uh, spiral of stairs going up above them. And to me, that image has always kind of set, just been drudgery. That's what I think of when there's a task that I have to do that I know is going to be. You think of looking at the stairs? Yes. Like, oh, Can I skip is... back to just uh, before that? I think that the for me, the biggest moment of change for him, or when I realize how much he has changed, is when he shows up at her house and she's possessed. Oh, yeah, uh, and now hole. she's trying to seduce him. And I don't know. It seems to me that the Vinkman at the beginning of the film would have just been happy to go along with. Yeah, demon, whatever. <laughs> with whatever. <laughs> uh, but he's actually... Well, and he's concerned for Dana. Right. It's not just that he's, you know, not, uh, you know, enthralled with the demon. <laughs> it's that he he really wants to know that Dana's okay in there. Right. And he, the, but the way that he talks to her and the way that he kind of soothes her all just seems very, um, I, don't know, I don't know if sweet is the right word for Peter Vinkman ever, but... <laughs> But, it, but well, it's, it's more human. It's, it's gentle. I think maybe gentle is the word that I'm looking for. The way that he talks to her and he's like, uh, I want to talk to Dana. Are you in there, Dana? I want to talk to Dana. But he just seems very gentle um, in a way that he isn't up to that point in the film. All of the pretense is gone. And I think he really is concerned for her. And I like that. And again, I don't know that I can point to anything beyond just work that's that's uh created this big change in him um i think it's one of the parts where maybe the story falls down a little bit (laughs) on closer examination yeah on closer examination is that we don't really see a lot of cause for the change in his character uh but i like that version of him when he's kind of trying to help her and she's throwing herself at him which is Exactly what he would have wanted earlier in the film, but he's able to show kind of restraint and gentleness as he uh, works through trying to, you know, help help this woman. I think it's cool. But I, I think to wrap up, we need to talk about the finale. Okay. <laughs> we, we need to touch on the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Okay. Where does he rank for you as far as just awesome finales of a film? <laughs> <laughs> it's... 
It's just a. It's it. The part that tracks me up is the fact that they're all able to keep their mind blank. So so go, Gozer, Gozen, Gozer, Gozer says, "I will take the form of whatever you you are most afraid of to destroy you." And all of them are able to keep their minds blank except for Ray. And then all of a sudden, you, you have chosen. You have chosen, and they're like, "What?" And he said, I couldn't help it. I just, I just tried to, you know, think of something. And so he thought of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And the Marshmallow Man comes, comes sort of stomping through the streets of New York City like a, like a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade balloon or something. So I'm just thinking, there's – so I found some stories where, that said, like, the initial idea for this, uh, before it became the ghost socials that we have, like, when they were still thinking maybe they'd have John Belushi and everything, there was going to be dimension hopping and time travel and all sorts of things. And they were even kind of like a paranormal SWAT team. <laughs> um, and it was when he was talking with Harold Ramis that they like budget became a concern. And so they really pared back a lot of things. At what point in the budget discussions do they say, we're going to need a giant Stay Puft Marshmallow <laughs> And everyone says, okay, we can do that. Let's go for it. That, that's doable. I just, it's so absurd and wonderful that this is a real threat that they're dealing with at the end of this film that is this giant cartoon character, which is simultaneously cuddly but creepy. Like the face of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man at that size, with the eyes rolling and everything. A little creepy. <laughs> well, and then and then it gets angry and it's even creepier. But also that means that whatever props and suit they used to film it couldn't be reused because it burned. Yes, they lit it on fire. <laughs> oh, I just love the absurdity of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man being the final set piece of a big budget blockbuster film. Yeah. I think our current version of that, like the closest thing we have where studios today are so like, they're so concerned about, you know, profit margins and, uh, you know, test audiences and all these other things. I think the closest thing we have to that is a talking tree and raccoon being centerpieces in, in another big budget blockbuster. Yeah. But that but, doesn't, doesn't even feel close. Yeah. But cause Sue's now playing it so safe with blockbuster films, like cause they're, they're investing literally millions and millions of dollars. They expect right. that it has to have millions of dollars of return. I don't know that we could have something as just out there as a marshmallow man, as the final threat set piece for a film. It's really, it's a really interesting mixture of, um, fear and I don't know how many adults in the '80s were afraid, were like legitimately scared by anything in Ghostbusters. Yeah, uh, but it but it leans toward, uh, you know, there are moments that try to try to get get you, like the uh, arm, demon arms coming out of an armrest. Yeah, um, but also comedy, mm-hmm. like like real live legitimate comedy that's. That, um, has, that stands the test of time. Like, still holds yeah, up. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's not, it's not a timely reference that gets dated. If someone asks if you're a god, <laughs> you say, say yes. You say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm trying to think of anything that's come afterwards that even come close to this in, like, tone or style where well, where they would even... Or it would even be on the table to have a finale like this because the the things that we get now are like big superhero films, which are either like absolutely dark. I mean, the, the Marshmallow Man is not going to show up in The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, but maybe it should have. <laughs> like The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> um, or like you get some really funny ones that are that are like really silly, like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. But the stakes for that have to remain really high, and I don't see them pulling the Marshmallow Man out or you know something similar. So, so yeah, in off. that finale, yeah. Well, it, I mean, there's the so the Marshmallow Man to me just screams of whimsy, and the Guardians of the Galaxy finale has silliness, like with the dance off distraction. But that is you know this human actor just being silly and goofing off for the right. audience, you know, for the camera. Whereas the Marshmallow Man is like. Massive budget invested in this whimsical giant marshmallow creature destroying the streets of New York City and yeah. climbing, <laughs> climbing the the building. It's like the King Kong move. Yeah, I just like I'm. It, it's it seems like maybe what what makes this film so great is how really unique it is. 
I just can't think of any other film like this except for this. And maybe there are, and and I I just don't. I mean, and again, know I know it. I'm certainly not a connoisseur of comedy by any means. I mean, they so they did the sequel, which I mean, you I, you said you've never seen it, and I have a vague memory of seeing it once when I was a child. And so I don't think they caught the lightning in a bottle again the second time. That worked so well in this, you know, even though they probably had a lot of the same behind the scenes cast and crew for the sequel, and obviously they had you know the same cast, I guess. But I, I would. Had, I would love for our listeners to write in and let us know like what I'm missing because I'm sure there's probably somebody like banging their head on a steering wheel right now saying, you're not thinking about this thing, but I really just can't think of something that that handles um, like serious and, and yet totally, I love the word that you're using, whimsical, in a way quite like this. I mean, and even, so the the scene right after they blow up the Marshmallow Man, and it's like, you know, Marshmallow Fluff is <laughs> just right. coded, coded to the city, and the, in the actors, you know, they're, they're wiping, like, they're mounds of marshmallow that suddenly uh-huh. they wipe, you know, a hand swipes, and you can see a face underneath all the marshmallow. Right. But there's, you know, it cuts from that scene, which is just absurd, but action-oriented, and they've saved the city, and so there's the relief, and uh, Ray says something like, well, it smells like barbecued dog, and they'd seen uh, Dana get transformed into a dog, you know, the, the mutant dog thing that we've been talking about, the demon right. dog. And all of a sudden he's like, Oh, I, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I wasn't thinking that, you know, your girlfriend's probably dead, which they, I mean, they, they find her alive shortly thereafter, but they give you a moment of, Oh, you know, they, they won, but they didn't really win. I love that they, that they all um, think of her as his girlfriend. <laughs> like nothing has happened <laughs> yes. that would give us any indication that that is really the case, except well, that they were they were supposed to go on one date together. I also love that uh, they all rush. Like so, she starts cracking out of this uh, stone shell uh, that's in the form of the demon dog, and she starts breaking out. And they all run over and start helping her break out. And then all of a sudden, you hear in the background, <laughs> Rick Moranis, "Hey, <laughs> hey!" <laughs> like no one thought of him at all. <laughs> Oh, I feel so bad for him. I just think he's such a sweet guy. I wish you could find somebody. <laughs> somebody to love. I want to say in the second one, he's dating their secretary. But uh, shouldn't she be with uh, Egon? I don't know. I can't remember. Maybe I'm wrong in the second one. Don't don't go beyond that. She's like shamelessly flirting with him. And You're he's, right. And he's doing the it. classic stereotypical scientist. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm interested in molds and spores and fungus. Um, so I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I've said all that I have to say about (laughs) character, about characters in this. I think that the, the performances are really magical. Bill Murray is, is one of a kind and the way, not only the lines, like the things that he says, but the way that he delivers them are, it's just spot on from start to finish. I guess this is my closing statement. I do have some issues with the storytelling in general in that I feel like his change maybe isn't completely earned. I do like the idea that work has something to do with it, but I I feel hesitant to accept that as the the cause for everything. I think we uh, may be putting that on there because there's so little else given to us. Yeah. But uh, but overall, it's it's pretty delightful. And if you're looking for something to get yourself in the holiday, the the Halloween holiday mood, uh, this is pretty good. Uh, yeah, I share your point. Like this is one of those. I, th- I feel like we've had. I'm starting to lose track of all the ones we talked about. I feel like we've had another one or two of these where maybe the story doesn't hold up to the scrutiny that we put it up to. After, you know, in an hour long discussion. But when you're watching it, you don't really care because the performances are so charming to watch. And yeah. uh, I, this movie just makes me happy <laughs> to watch <laughs> to watch the way that the four Ghostbusters play off of each other. <laughs> and I, we didn't really mention it, but Ernie Hudson also is a great new dynamic when he gets added to the group. Yeah, um, he he just adds for the final you know act of the film. He gives it a spark that it needed, I think. Yeah. And and he delivers one of the few very serious scenes, him and Ray. When they're having a discussion about, is this really, like, biblical? Like, this is real. They like, start, oh, oh, you know, they start, book of Revelations uh, quoting stuff. scripture to each <laughs> other awesome. while they're driving at night. <laughs> like, have you, have you really thought about what we're doing? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, 
I highly recommend this. It seems like neither of us have much to say about the second Ghostbusters, but I'm very intrigued with the new Ghostbusters movie that is currently in production. So really? we'll see if we uh, we get the chance to comment on that as a great, char- great character and a great story. Do we know who's playing in it? All right, so the new Ghostbusters film, which is going to come out next year, it has Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Kate McKinnon, and Leslie Jones are the four Ghostbusters. And then they announced that the secretary is going to be Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And I just got to say, the internet has been, there's been a subset of the internet that has had a very sexist backlash against this and, you know, complained about the casting, first of all, about it being four women, and then also complained about what they say is for, you know, non-classically beautiful Hollywood women being cast in the role, to which I say, which of the original Ghostbusters was the sex symbol? Yeah. (laughs) Internet. (laughs) This is not a franchise known (laughs) for (laughs) casting the most attractive to people it's it's comedic chops is what they're looking for and i think yeah. this new ghostbusters film certainly has comedic chops yeah it'll be interesting so to see how hopefully it it'll be out. as good as this first one and not as forgettable as the second ghostbusters <laughs> film so on that note any final thoughts todd are you good i'm good before we wrap up, uh, we, we did ask for some feedback feedback on Facebook. We'll be doing that a little more often, so keep an eye out on our Facebook page for the chance to offer us some comments before uh, we record, and we'll try and include those when we have a discussion. So, Todd, what uh, what was uh, we did this like real last minute before our recording? So, only yeah, this was comments. real last minute, and I got three comments, and I they're all fantastic. So, listener Christy says, uh, so my question was, who is your favorite character from the film, and why? Listener Christy says, not characters necessarily, but some funny lines. Uh, And her favorite is, when someone asks you if you're a god, say yes. (laughs) Which I think is fantastic and probably will be the title of this episode. Yes, it was going to be that or don't cross the streams, I think. Listener Sarah says, uh, Peter Vinkman is her spirit animal. (laughs) And listener Jennifer says, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Because now that I've said that, you can't stop thinking about it. (laughs) Which, uh, right before... They do the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and he's saying, clear your heads. He's like, I've got it. If we think J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover's going to kill us. So think of nothing now. <laughs> I, surely one of them was still thinking J. Edgar Hoover. It's <laughs> uh, great. So thank you, listeners, for uh, writing in. We really appreciate your comments and uh, any interaction that we get. It just makes our day. We're going to look to solicit more of those in the future, so keep an eye out on our Facebook fan page for the chance to comment before we record. All right. Well, thank you for joining us this week. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes or any other podcast service, and leave us a review, please. That helps us out a great deal. Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com, and you can also find a list of all of our shows there. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com, and we're all on Twitter at protagonist pod at todd k mac at jay dorowski and our producer andrew is at andrew underscore dorowski and you can also like our facebook fan page facebook.com slash protagonist podcast that's where we've had some discussion going we love to see that please offer any comments under the postings for our shows there and if you'd like to buy a topic for us to discuss or support us with a little financial donation you can click the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist thanks again for listening and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character and a great story so long so long um uh sorry i was just checking the recess of my mind for something (laughs)